Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White. We're recording this on November 16th. Our last episode was four weeks ago. We skipped an episode in the middle to wait and see what happens with the election. And here we are. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Richard Epstein. Richard, what did I miss? Uh, about the election? Um, sure. nothing much. Nothing much happened in the interim. I think there's a rumor that Joe Biden actually won, and I now call him president-elect. Uh, I think the biggest stories are not that. Uh, I think the biggest stories are the fact that, against all odds, the Republicans seem to have held the Senate and have made substantial gains in the House. So obviously, it turns out that Trump's had some negative coattails, but they were not strong enough to drive the Republicans out. If I had to give an estimation as to what is going on, I think that there were two things that sunk Trump. One is his personality, which turns off more people than it appeals to. And secondly, there was a lot of uneasiness, uh, some of it I think unjustified, about his performance with respect to the COVID uh, situation. The Democrats were able to pin national neglect on him when a lot of it was local misfeasance, but there it is. On the other hand, I think the, the down tickets were reflected by a couple of things. My guess is that Amy Barrett saved the Republican control over the Senate because because she gave a quiet, dignified, sensible performance. And what happened is people started to realize that if she is the uh, sixth uh, conservative vote, we have less to fear than might be appeared. And I think a lot of Republican women in particular were impressed by her. And people like Lindsey Graham, who seemed to be in serious trouble, went quite comfortably on this. In the House, I don't think it was the confirmation issue that drove it, but I think it was the combination of the serious rise and the defund the police movement uh, that were moving that thing. And so I guess at last count, the Republicans have picked up nine seats with the possibility of two or three um, more. So I think, in effect, we are looking forward to an era of divided government. And it's for everybody to guess exactly how it will play out. Maybe we'll circle back to the, the political horse race in just a minute. But the way, the way you phrased the beginning of that answer, it highlights one of the great challenges that this election's reminded us of. You said, you know, he's been, uh, he's been declared the president, he's been declared the winner, and, and you're referring to him as President-elect Biden. I'm, I'm tempted to paraphrase the Simpsons uh, and say, I, for one, welcome our new overlords. Uh, but it, it is sort of interesting to watch this play out sort of day by day, especially in the days after the election, when you sort of wait and wonder, well, who decides this thing, right? The, the, the press normally calls elections state by state, and then that adds up to an electoral college winner. Um, of course, the final tallies don't come until much later. Uh, but our whole system sort of presumes that long before the electoral votes are cast, certified, that that we'll know the winner. And the statute governing transitions, which was a pretty important statute. I mean, the original statute dates back to, I think, 62 or thereabouts. But but in recent years, we saw major reforms to the presidential transition process. Congress legislated reforms because it is such an important process. But it leaves sort of, it leaves to the hands of the GSA administrator the job of deciding, I think the word in the statute is ascertaining who the winner of the election is, and then sort of handing over the car keys for the transition over to, to the, the new president-elect. And so you have the press, GSA, the Electoral College, Congress, all of these institutions all in place to decide who won an election. And in normal times, we assume that this is pretty straightforward. But we've never actually seen anything quite like this. I, now, to be very clear here, I don't think there's any doubt uh, Joe Biden won the election. It seems very clear using all the old methods of doing this. Um, and I don't see any sort of conspiracy either in the way 
that the press settled upon calling particular state elections. And I, and I don't see any sort of great conspiracy theory behind the, the tabulation machines or, or anything like that. But it is interesting to sit back and say, well, wait a second, who actually decides this thing? Trump at one point had a, had a tweet that said, you know, since when has the press been in charge of calling elections? And the answer is, well, I think at least since the 1960s. Um, but it's a very precarious system. And as with so many institutional things in the last few years, Trump seems to be pushing all of these assumptions uh, past the breaking point. So what's your, before we get back to the horse race, what's just your sense of the basic nuts and bolts of the electoral process? Well, look, I think the first thing to understand is so long as there's any uncertainty, the president, however improbable his theories, is entitled to push them in the courts. But I think he's also bound when they've decided against it to accept it. But there was a nice piece by my friend Charles Lipson in this morning's, I think, Wall Street Journal who says, I don't care what the outcome of the election is for the purposes of sharing information. Um, uh, Biden certainly has, quote, at least a minimal chance of winning, you know, minimal meaning over 95 percent at least, um, and that they should share the information right now so he could organize his transitional team. And if it turns out that uh, Trump wins by some kind of a miracle, then uh, that information remains classified, but it doesn't happen. So I I think in order to get this thing done, the president is being obstructionist and I think unwise to do that. Um, As ever, this is not a man you love to love. This is a man you love to hate, whether you vote for him or whether you don't, then he is basically showing why it is so many Americans don't want to vote for him. Uh, So I think there's that going. I assume there are official methods by which these things are tallied, um, that there are election commissions that make final votes on this stuff. Uh, I think if they're disputed, you go to court. And once the court decides the question, that becomes the final judgment. I think the reason why there's so much unease on the Trump part is something which I think everybody knew. On election evening, I went to bed uh, thinking pretty confidently that Trump had won the election, much to my surprise. I wake up in the morning and Biden is ahead. And so what happened in the middle of the night is obviously the story that everybody's going to ask. Uh, But you could ask that question, but that's not enough to upset an election. And it turns out, as far as I can tell, there's been nothing yet that has been reported uh, that hasn't been effectively rebutted. And so it seems to me that uh, what you said is going to be accurate. Biden is, in fact, the president-elect. Sidney Powell claims to have something up her sleeve, uh, but she has to show it. And I would say that the odds of that coming out, given the strength of denials by everybody else up and down in the system, is highly remote. Uh, so I think it's even all the more important that the information be transferred so that the Biden transition could take place. Um, at that particular point, I do think we face the prospect of a divided government. Government, but uh, we've been there before and we'll be able to survive this again. Uh, to many people, it'd be an immense relief to be rid of Donald Trump, who's just too disruptive a figure. Uh, to many people like myself, um, there's a certain apprehension about where Biden, or more accurately, Biden and the progressive Democrats are going to go. After the election, I think it's a much more complicated picture because I don't believe that the radicals or the progressives inside the Democratic Party have a commanding lead. If anything, I think the moderates are probably going to be more assertive, saying, we do this, then there's going to be a bloodbath. There's going to be carnage in both the Senate and the House in the elections come 2022. And the time that you try to guard against that is now. So I think, in effect, that Trump will essentially lose out. I think Biden will take over. And then the question is just how is the transition going to run? And you? Well, on the election or on the litigation point, I, I think I disagree a little bit. You said at one point, you know, these things can be litigated in the courts. And, and of course, that's true. But the question is, should they be? And about a week ago, I wrote a piece um, for the bulwark.com 
arguing that that we shouldn't think of these lawsuits, at least the lawsuits that President Trump's lawyers were were suggesting in the parking lot outside of the uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping and 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 the sex shop next door. Um, I I think that actually it's incumbent upon a president not to just sort of litigate this willy nilly. Um, he's the president, of course. He has the he swore an oath to to, to execute faithfully execute his office. Um, he's not a you know a casino developer who's trying to fend off creditors from a bankrupt casino with long shot litigation threats. It's fundamentally different. And so I've I've resisted for the last week or so, you know, arguments about well, what are the merits of the lawsuit? I mean, that I think that's in some ways secondary. The first question is whether long shot lawsuits should be brought by the president in the first place. And I really think it's incumbent upon people who are vigorously defending the president and, and you haven't taken any I mean you're not you have just now haven't staked out any position on the lawsuits themselves. So I don't mean I'm not talking about you specifically here, but those who have said on the merits there might be something to the lawsuits, I think they ought to explain whether there's enough there in the merits to actually justify this kind of Hail Mary lawsuit um filed by the President of the United States to try to to overturn the apparent uh, outcome of the election. I, I just think the president needs to be held to a higher standard. Um, well, I agree with that. I mean, in terms of what it ought to be, I don't think you should be trying to uh, throw 1% chance litigation at this thing and disrupt the entire cycle. Um, uh, what happens is if I knew exactly what their evidence were, I would make a stronger judgment, but I just don't have access to that kind of information. I will say I was quite struck by the vehemence of the statements by somebody like Sidney Powell. I've got you know millions of votes behind me, and the vehemence of the defense on the other side saying that we we could explain all the anomalies that you saw on the one hand, and we can tell you how the security systems were put together. So seeing what I've seen thus far, she has not come close to making her case. And my own view about this is that you want to get this resolved as quickly as possible, because I think it's absolutely important, uh, whether you have a president who you're liking or not, that when the transition comes, that the incoming president be given full cooperation. That was the attitude that George Bush took with the second George Bush with respect to Barack Obama. It wasn't quite the attitude that Obama took with respect to Trump. There was a lot of bad blood there. Uh, but I think cooperation is absolutely of the essence. And if these cases are as improbable as they seem, then the Democrats should be given full control over the transition process. And then the accountability will be political. It will not be to these kinds of somewhat improbable lawsuits. That's the way I see it now. Um, I'm always willing to be surprised, uh, but I, I it seems to me at this point, given the fact that it's now, what, it's 12 days after the election, 13 days after the election, if you haven't come up with the smoking gun in the first 13 days, you're not going to come up with it in the 14th or 15th. Now, I say there is litigation that goes all the way up um, through the federal courts to the Supreme Court. Um, there will be a lot of calls for ju- the new justice, Amy Coney Barrett, to, to recuse. Have you thought about that at all? Yes, I have. I don't think she could recuse herself. I think it's, you're there, everybody else. So why her? Why not ask Kavanaugh and Gorsuch to recuse? Why not ask all the Democrats who got in? The argument that was always made on recusal in this case was the uh, decision of Elena Kagan not to recuse herself on the uh, uh, Obama uh, Affordable Care Act case, given that she was active in this, the um, Solicitor General's office planning strategy on how this thing should be designed and litigated. And if that's the standard, 
There's absolutely no indication whatsoever that Judge Barrett, from now Justice Barrett, said anything whatsoever to do with anything involved in the case. And so I think she has to sit like everybody else. I think it's a very dangerous precedent to ask people to start to recuse themselves. Uh, there's likely to be other litigation that's going to involve Trump decisions in the years coming ahead. And if she's supposed to re- disregard herself with respect to all of them, I don't know. My view is she does not recuse herself. I have complete confidence that she's somebody who's going to understand what the facts are in the law, and she's going to decide this thing on the correct basis. I really do not like the kinds of character assassinations that I think are implicit behind that sort of a situation. I would certainly in always insist on a presumption of good faith in favor of every Supreme Court nominee, every Supreme Court justice. And I don't think that she should be the one notable exception to that rule. Well, you know, about your former colleague, Elena Kagan, um, I don't know, maybe mm-hmm. I think she probably should have recused in the Obama. I think so, too. Yeah, I I, I think she should. have. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, uh, Thurgood Marshall, I think, had the right kind of rule. You know, he and the NAACP were involved in all sorts of litigations before he goes on the Second Circuit. And his basic attitude was, look, I can't be perpetually disbarred from dealing with these things. What I'm going to do is since I've been involved with this litigation, I'm going to take three years off. The difference between him and uh, Kagan on the one side and Barrett on the other side. She's been involved in no litigation whatsoever that right. connects the thing. And it's past litigation is the test, not affinities. Um, the affinity test is so broad that essentially you have nine Supreme Court justices always having to recuse themselves whenever a presidential issue comes up. That can't be the test. Yeah, what worries me about Barrett's position here. I agree with you. I I presume total good faith on her. She doesn't have any kind of sustained connections to the Trump administration. She wasn't in the administration. It's nothing like that. And and if there are photos of her like hanging out at parties at at, at Trump Hotel or whatever, I sure haven't seen them. I she she just doesn't have that kind of connection to the administration. She's not that kind of a person. What, what, what? She has seven children at home. I mean, no, she's not going to be out gallivanting with the president. Now, even Justice Scalia with his famous hunting trips with the Cheney and so yeah. forth, that's not what we have in this particular case. She was chosen for a couple of reasons. One, absolutely impeccable kind of demeanor and personality. And secondly, she had already gone through the grilling right. uh, when she was up for the appellate court. And if anybody, it was Diane Feinstein who seriously overstepped the limits when she started to question her about her a loyalty to her faith, which rings loud within her. And so she was, by and large, relatively bulletproof. And the Democrats, to their credit, uh, they did not try to launch anything like the broadside that they did against Kavanaugh, even the more modest broadside against Gorsuch. She went through in a polite way. She's a full-fledged member of the court, and, and I don't think that there should be any effort whatsoever to try to ask her to recuse herself. There is no statute that governs recusals. I think it's generally self-enforcing. I don't think this particular case even comes close uh, to a question where you would want to question, even politically, what her judgment is on this particular case. What worries me about the situation, though, is, as with always, President Trump's constant running of his mouth uh, complicates things, right? He said— even he said shortly before nominating her, you know, he talked about this vacancy. He talked about the need to appoint somebody in connection with post-election litigation. He never he never connected the dots. He never does. He always just sort of throws them out there like a shotgun spray. Um, but he said so much beforehand, and then you know, Barrett when she had her her Rose Garden, uh, you know, speech in 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 honor of her nomination, she certainly didn't allude to his remarks, but she did say something, if I remember correctly, along the lines of, 
I'm grateful to the president for putting his trust in me. She obviously was not referring to the election. We all know that. Um, But President Trump just said so much before and after her nomination that I think that I don't think that I think you can make a non-frivolous case against recusal, more than non-frivolous. I mean, not non-frivolous against in favor of recusal. Yeah, in favor of recusal. Thank you. Um, in I think in good faith, just simply about the appearances of it, I think ultimately, I, I kind of like how, I can't remember if she said this or others said it, that ultimately it's a matter of getting confirmed and then working through the process within the court, talking to colleagues, trying to understand what the institutional sort of norms are, and then going there. I think it's a it seems to me a zone of discretion where it'll be up to her. I, I think I will be more at ease if she recuses. I mean, who knows which way it'll cut since we don't know what the legal arguments are. We don't know whether they're ones that she would be inclined to agree with anyway. But I would just hate to see her her appointment. And I think she, I think she might be a tremendous justice on that court for decades after decades. Um, I would hate to see it get off on the wrong foot with a cloud of ugly partisan dispute around whether she, you know, she was appointed to do a job and then and then did it. Oh, there, there are two downsides. The other one is she recuses herself. Justice Roberts flips. It's now 4-4. And then you have this different kind of crisis of legitimacy, immediate and direct. I just, I mean, I know her. She's an academic and I'm too strong to call her a friend, but I mean, we certainly cordial relationship. I just don't have the slightest doubt about her character on any of these issues. I think she literally was chosen by Trump, ironically, or by his advisors, precisely because she doesn't have any kind of political connection. So imagine what would happen if Ted Cruz had received the nomination, right? Um, by way of a, a kind of a comparison and made it through in some sense. It, it's, I just don't think that this is, a, is that serious a problem. I also think that it's highly unlikely that this thing is going to come up. And if it does come up, it's likely to come up in connection with the Pennsylvania decision uh, with respect to the postponement of the deadlines or the lifting of the deadlines on filing a pretty heavily legal career in a state now, which I guess is not the swing state. If I'm not mistaken about this, even if you put North Carolina into the uh, Republican column, what does Biden have? 306 votes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my guess. Yeah. And well, my 306 minus 20 is 286 and you need 270 to win. Uh, So I, I, I think, frankly, it's a very low probability in order for this thing to have any credibility whatsoever. Uh, There has to be some decision in favor of Trump in a lower court that will make a difference. There will be no Supreme Court hearing um, if it turns out that Biden wins a uniform number of lower court decisions and Trump comes up, that's not a Hail Mary. Uh, um, that's just simply a needle in the haystack kind of operation. And I think the Supreme Court would be right to turn down certiorari. Remember, the point about Florida is it was a limited dispute. You just had to recount and look at chance. In this particular case, it's a very different kind of lawsuit. Recounts are a small part of it. Uh, the serious claims that are made by the Trump side was that you shifted votes from one column to another, you destroyed some ballots, you added some ballots into this kind of thing, and that requires that you go look beyond the voting machine. That's the kind of messy factual case that you're going to assert on which the Supreme Court has no comparative advantage. And so if all those factual determinations are decided in favor uh, of the Democrats, then the Republicans, are basically the Supreme Court guys, Amy Barrett and so forth, they believe in the distinction of facts, questions of law and questions of fact. They're not going to review those things if they're just questions of fact. And I think it would be nine nothing on that is my actual view. 
Now, what about the, the, the worry that a state legislature could just go rogue? The Constitution says in very broad terms that, that electors for the Electoral College will be appointed in a manner chosen by the state legislature. So what, what happens if the Pennsylvania legislature and another state's legislature say, uh, we have lost confidence in our state's election. We very strongly believe that the will of the people was in favor of, of uh, reelecting President Trump and that that's what the true votes would have come out to. And therefore, we are, we're exercising our prerogative to appoint the electors uh, in this other way. Uh, what, what would you say, say to that? I think it would be the most destructive move that it could ever be made. Let me sort of explain how it is I think about this. And you have to go back to how we put the, the whole electoral system together. The original situation with respect to the electoral college, quite clearly, uh, was that it was a deliberative body. Uh, not one deliberative body, but many deliberative bodies. You'd have electoral college delegates meet in each of the states, and then they send the tabs in. And it became very clear very early on that the faithless agent problem was extremely important. And so what they did is they indulged in a fiction of the bound elector. Uh, and so what happens, instead of being a, a, a messenger, or an ambassador, or an agent, uh, all you did is you became essentially an automatic pawn of a greater person. For the entire 200 odd years that we have done this particular system, there has never there's been a very powerful understanding that the rules of the game when set by the state legislature are set before the electoral situation they're not said afterwards. So after Chiafalo, uh, I think the correct reading, and here I agreed with Justice Kagan on this one point, that we have such an powerful prescriptive constitution that you cannot in the last moment try an absolute stunt like this in order to beat what was going back. Because if you could do that, then not only can these states change, but some other state could come along and say, we think that Pennsylvania is illegitimate. We're going to change our vote from Republican side to Democratic side. Uh, the whole thing would be a chaos. So I think the Supreme Court should come up and say, look, the rules of these games are set. I'm a great believer, in, you know, of the prescriptive constitution, uh, that things that started one way end up another way. Uh, and you can't create prescription uh, in one minute in an opportunist decision the way they're doing so. I would think that that would be a call for immediate Supreme Court intervention, 9-0 to strike this thing down, because otherwise the electoral process will never be what it is. Um, there are many things you might want to do to change how the Electoral College runs, um, you know, and you can do that by constitutional amendment and so forth. A legislature, to my judgment, can certainly pass a statute which says that we're not going to give all of our electoral votes to the first past the post. We're going to divide it pro rata. If they wanted to do that, I think they could do that, although nobody's ever done it before. And no state, I think, is likely to do it unilaterally. But boy, oh boy, I mean, I'd be out there writing amicus briefs against the Republican Party if they try to stunt like that. And it would cost them all credibility. And in my view, they should be then exiled to the darkest place in hell for trying a scheme of that sort. Is I think you made the point, enough? Richard. And I, I, I tend to agree. There's a, there, there was a really Thank interesting you. article. I'd encourage our listeners, if they're interested in this, to look it up. It was by Professor Michael Morley of Florida State. He has an article that's up on SSRN.com about the, the, the theory of the independent state legislature. This question of whether state legislatures really were freed by the U.S. Constitution uh, from any constraints that the state constitutions would have put on them when they're performing this federal role of providing for the appointment of legislatures. It's a fascinating article, and it shows that there have been occasions that have pointed in the direction of true state legislative independence on questions of either the, elector the electors or 
um, redistricting. Um, but ultimately, I'm with you. I think I think that the sweep of, of history is best understood by by the lack of controversies arising around this, um, and that the, the the this now consistent practice over 200 years is the best way to understand the Constitution and really ought to be given real meaningful constitutional weight um, because the alternative would just be sheer sheer chaos. It, it, it'd be inconceivable that somebody should try to do that. Uh, uh, with the, there's a funny thing about custom, which is you never know how customs are, how strong customs are until somebody tries to violate them, at which point it becomes painfully clear. Uh, this is the greatness of Jane Austen as a novelist, right? She starts to talk about people who flout the local customs of the uh, English aristocracy cir- circa 1810. And what she's so brilliant about is once you see how some Somebody deviates from these rules, you understand how wise and all-powerful those rules turn out to be. And I think that's generally true with respect to ethics. Um, most people in their day-to-day life are slave to a set of rules that have allowed civilization to survive, and they don't realize that they're following their rules until somebody tries to break them, at which point there is a fierce kind of response. And I'm basically trying to be you know, a, a garter of the old flame in this situation, and I've seen that Republican suggestion, and I think it is just one of the most dangerous things that anyone could possibly contemplate. Um, and I just give a list of things, for example, that are basically done now, which no originalist theory can account for. A Marbury v. Madison is clearly wrong as a originalist theory if it's designed to say that there's judicial supremacy, but we've had that for a rather long time. A Martin and Hunter's lessee is wrong uh, when it says that the original Constitution allowed the United States Supreme Court to review judgments that deny constitutional claims that have been entered by state courts. Under the original supremacy clause, they had the improbable view uh, that what it was that state judges did would be the authoritative interpretation of the federal constitution as a check on the federal government and a check on the Supreme Court. There's no such thing as an Article I court, although they've been around now since about 1810 or 1850. Uh, There's never been a reasonable claim to say that a corporation is a citizen because it's not a person. And if you allow corporations to vote, I'll create a million subsidiary corporations and win every election unless you do the same thing. And so the list starts to go on. Uh, We have to understand that the Constitution in some ways was changed years and years ago. This is not an invitation for people to do it today. This is just a recognition that what happened is these practices were legitimated before they were challenged. And then once they were in place, it became too costly and too dangerous for anybody who made a constitutional challenge to be able to prevail on them. And this falls exactly within that particular category. The legislature has a lot of room to do things, but it cannot be done opportunistically after the votes have been cast. It has to be done generally and prospectively before any votes have been cast whatsoever. And I think that uh, the Republicans, and I hope that all Republicans, apart from the president, would understand that provision and, and would essentially reaffirm the traditional practice or we're in for a very rough period of time. Well, let's change gears and talk a little bit about uh, the federal legislature. Uh, the president, the presidency wasn't the only office uh, on the ballot. Um, we had elections for, as always, every two years, the, the House of Representatives and for a third of the Senate seats. And while the Democrats won the presidency, they lost uh, ground in the House. They didn't lose control, but I think I think Republicans have gained, what did you say at the outset, nine seats with maybe a couple more yet to come? I think it's nine seats now, maybe another two or three to come, which could make the gap as little oh, as eight And then the Senate seats. sort of hangs on the balance. I think right now we're at, what, 50, 48 
Republican with two seats, the two Georgia seats up for grabs, which means we could see as much as 52-48 Republican, or we could see 50-50 even split with the Democratic vice president breaking the, uh, the tie. So what, what's, your, what's your sense of Congress now? Uh, my sense of Congress I, I, is I think the Republicans probably have a probability about 0.95 of winning one of the two seats, probably about 0.6 of winning both, and probably about 5% of losing both. Uh, if that adds up, I'm not quite sure that it does. Um, uh, so I don't think we're going to come to that crisis. My view, and I've often thought this, is that Joe Manchin becomes the key figure. If the Republicans lose both Georgia seats, which I think is highly unlikely, I think Manchin is already announced that he's against a filibuster relaxation, uh, which means it will not pass. And he's also against the court packing, which means that that will not pass. Uh, but I think he yeah. might actually switch parties. Um, I don't expect him to do so under any other circumstances. Uh, but I regard that as an unanticipated complication, which may or may not happen. I have no private information about all of this stuff, but it's pretty clear that on judicial nominations and so forth, he's been pretty much an outlier with respect to the party. If he switches, um, it's not going to hurt his brand in West Virginia very much because that's such a heavily Republican state. I think he likes being a conservative Democrat. I don't think he would want to shift, and he might not even do it if that takes place. Uh, but I think at this point, the odds are that the Republicans will retain the Senate. And I think a large part of it, as I mentioned, is because of Amy Barrett's performance. Um, people like Lindsey Graham were thought to be in a real dogfight. And then he chairs this committee and he performs well and she performs well. I think what happens is that the country is not basically uh, in the thrall of its two coastal dominations. It's not New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. It's a much more diverse place. So I think, in effect, that the Biden administration is going to face two things. One is relatively unified and hostile Republicans, and two, division within their own ranks. I did write something which is coming up, I think, on the Hoover column shortly about an independent task force dealing with environmental issues having to do with climate change, which I thought was just over the top. It's not going to be sustainable. And I think to the extent that these things are trial balloons, Biden would be better to pull back on some of this stuff. In particular, I think he will get himself into a terrible mess if he becomes very aggressive on fracking, both by stopping it on federal lands, which I think would be a mistake, and then also by trying to stop it in terms of private markets by altering the way in which the pipelines are going to be dealt with or changing permitting or regulatory practices. I do think that he's going to be torn very much uh, between these two things. I hope he follows the moderate course, at which point I think we can certainly proceed without a lot of the storm and dren uh, that we had when Mr. Trump was president. But if I think he starts to sound as though he's on the far left side of the Democratic Party, I think he runs the risk of not only alienating the Republicans, but also losing perhaps a quarter of a third of his own Well, base. that point about what and happens you? with Joe Manchin from West Virginia, it really is key. If, if Democrats do manage to win two the two Georgia seats and deadlock the Senate, then the real election that's going to matter is whether Joe, Joe Manchin elects to remain in the Democratic Party or not. I mean, it's, it's a fun sort of throwback to Jim Jeffords uh, leaving the Republican Party. The 2000 presidential election, we keep thinking back to Bush v. Gore, but that election also left the Senate deadlock 50-50 with Vice President Cheney with the tie-breaking vote. And about five months into uh, the Bush administration, Democrats succeeded in bringing Jim Jeffords over to the Democratic side, giving Democrats an outright control of the Senate for, for two years. Um, 
Joe Manchin, he doesn't, he's not up for re-election again until 2024, but still he's going to have to decide where his long-term future is in politics. And does he want to continue running as a Democrat in West Virginia or a, a Republican? But I could see, one can only imagine what Mitch McConnell and Republicans would, would, would offer to Manchin in terms of committee chairmanship and so on if, uh, if, if he is what they need to regain the outright majority of the Senate. Uh, nobody on Fox well, about, is Mitch about McConnell. Mitch McConnell. So right. let's say that that Republicans do maintain control of the Senate, fifty-one forty-nine. Let's say, I, what what happens then in terms of just the ordinary work of government? Uh, on the one hand, maybe McConnell and Republicans will will get along with with the Biden administration on some things, but on appointments, executive branch appointments, judicial appointments, if say Justice Breyer steps down at the end of this next Supreme Court term. Uh, what, 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 how should Senator McConnell and the Republicans conduct themselves as the majority um, against the, the, the Democratic White House? Well, I, I basically distinguish between two kinds of appointments. One is administrative appointments, which will end with the end of the Biden administration. And the other is with judicial appointments or other kinds of appointments, which will last beyond it. I think that what the Republicans should do when it comes to all of the administrative people is essentially be extraordinarily accommodating. And the only people they should go against are those people for whom there are very serious, questionable signs about what's going on. And I can't conceive of that with respect to the kinds of mainstream people. It would be, I think, indefensible for them to try to take a, a somebody who's basically an Obama rerun and then to say, oh, you want this guy to be Secretary of Treasury and so forth. No, 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 you can't have that leads to paralysis, and I think it would be terrible. On the judicial front, I, I think that's going to be rather bloody. Um, if you recall when the Republicans had the presidency and the Democrats had the House, and they were trying to figure out what they do, the Democrats' attitude is, well, uh, we've got the veto power. We're pretty unified, Mr. President. So you get one, and we get one, and we do them in pairs. Now, whether the ratio is one to one or one to two or two to one, one cannot say. It depends on how solid it is. Is Susan Collins going to move over on some of these? Will you, in effect, which I think would be wise on the part of the Republicans, is to take some moderate Democrats, say a, a conservative Democrat businessman who's experts in financial affairs, wants to go on the Court of Appeals or the tax court and let those guys through and then concentrate their fire on people whom they think, from their point of view, are sort of dangerous folks. And so my strategy, if I were McConnell, is I would not sort of basically put everybody up for grabs on the bargaining as a comprehensive situation. I would find those that you're reasonably comfortable with and let them go through. And then with respect to the others, I think you would then start to have this pairing kind of an arrangement. But it's clearly going to be a lot slower than it was under the previous administration. You're going to see Democrats who are on the court hanging on. Uh, because they're afraid that their replacements won't go take place. And you will see Republicans, of course, hanging on for the same reason. Uh, so there'll be relatively few resignations compared to what it was amongst the Republican side under Trump. And, and I think it could be really ugly. And my hope is that they could drop the rhetoric down because, again, you know, they're fighting over 5% of the docket. 
is what the fundamental differences are. And it turns out you still got a lot of civil suits, which were ordinary litigation on commercial transactions, statutory claims of one kind or another, administrative law claims that don't have that sort of huge controversy with them. And it would be an utter shame if these two parties could not get together so as to adequately staff the court so they could deal with all of this pressing routine business that starts to take place. I mean, Adam, maybe I would like your reaction too. My view is it's a little bit crazy when we come to the Supreme Court to say, oh, we really care about abortion. We really care about campaign expenditures. We really care about criminal punishments in some way. And, you know, we, we care about uh, freedom of speech and Citizens United. And the other 95% of the docket really doesn't matter. Well, the other 95% of the docket does matter. And if you don't have enough lower court judges to deal with those 95% of the cases, you're failing everybody in the American system. And so my attitude at that point would be a plague on both. Yeah, cases. I agree. Obviously, President Trump and, and McConnell and the Senate have filled, they've, what's the saying, leave no vacancy left behind. Uh, they've basically filled up as many vacancies as possible. So, oh, and they'll fill up the rest of them before January 3rd. Yeah, so there aren't any real vacancies until new judges start vacating seats, and we'll see how many of those there are. The one that I'm thinking the most about is Justice Breyer. He, for so many reasons, is probably the one next in line to step down. And this might be, the, the end of this coming term might be his only chance to do so with a plausible opportunity for, uh, f- for some kind of agreement on a successor. If he waits until the second year in the run-up to the next midterm elections, uh, then there's going to be real temptation, I think, to hold that, that, that seat open through the elections just to see what happens. And then after that, all bets are off because who knows whether Republicans will strengthen their hand in the second in, in the second half of Biden's first term or not. So if I had to guess, I'd guess, and I, I think it's probably more likely than not, that Justice Breyer will announce a retirement at the end of this term, whether he whether it's effective immediately or whether it's contingent upon the confirmation of his successor, who knows? But a a, a retirement six months into Biden's first term when a president has maximum political capital was probably the best opportunity to get people like Collins and some other centrist Republicans to publicly endorse um, moving forward on a nomination and maybe building up enough political pressure that Senator McConnell would, in the majority would actually have to move forward. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine I'll very much like whoever Joe Biden would nominate to replace Breyer. But what I really don't want to see is, is four years or three and a half years of open warfare like the Garland option, which I was in favor of, you know, opposing Garland for a year. I don't know that I, I, I don't know that I, I would personally endorse the Senate holding open a Supreme Court seat for three and a half years. I think it would be terrible. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah my, I did be. write a piece a long time ago called Merrick Garland Political Porn. Um, there was no objection that you could raise to the man based upon his record of temperament. He was probably more conservative than all the other Democrats in sitting positions. Uh, the thing that the Republicans perceived, and I think they were right about it, is if you look to that list of dynamite issues, he was going to vote with the liberal bloc on all of them, and that was what provoked them to respond. 
But now this would be a situation where the control of the, the Senate or the court will not change. Garland would have taken 4-5 and made it 5-4. And I think what the Republicans should do is they should basically make it very clear in advance that they would support, with some degree of enthusiasm, um, a Garland-like replica. You couldn't pick him again because I think he'd be too old at this particular point to do the job. Uh, but I would certainly hope that they would accept that kind of a solution. Um, I have a long history of basically never opposing any nomination for the Supreme Court, even though there are many people who were nominated for the Supreme Court who I would never choose in a very long period of time. And, and I don't expect politicians to have that same detached air that I do. Uh, but I do think, in effect, that if the Biden administration comes forward with a central, a centrist Democrat, it would be fine. Now, he may have boxed himself in when he says my next nominee is likely to be a female black person, uh, presumably further to the left than otherwise. I would not hold him to that. I mean, he could find anybody who's centrist. I don't care about race. I don't care about sex. I care about the way in which they're going to start to vote. And I mean, he's going to have to face this problem because even though he might agree with you and with me, Adam, we are not his key advisors. And he has an entire party that he has to deal with. And the last thing that he needs is to nominate somebody who's sufficiently far to the right, that there'll be some Democratic senators like White House and so forth who refuse to support the president on those nominations. I think that's an additional risk that we have to take into account. Uh, maybe Justice Breyer is not going to retire. Yeah. Yeah, what is about 82 remember. or 83 now? Is that right? Yeah. But it's, he's born in the 30s, right? So that already puts him, uh, unlike people like me who were born in the early to mid 40s in the antediluvian class. The other possibility is, of course, that uh, Clarence Thomas might retire for one reason or another, uh, which would then, of course, completely change the dynamics or both could retire together and you could have some kind of a package deal for getting something through. It's too early to make a prediction, but I do think on this issue, a divided government uh, that we will have if the Republicans retain the Senate through hook or through crook in one way or another, it's likely to be extraordinarily ugly. It's going to be hard enough with lower court nominees and other kinds of appointments. I hope it doesn't come to the Supreme Court. So again, I mean, we could live if we don't have too many more lower court judges. I think we can live at least. Uh, but on the Supreme Court, going with eight for a very long period of time would be a very serious mistake. And I think both parties should bend over backwards uh, to find some kind of accommodation. And the sort of hypothetical Merrick Garland seems to me to be the perfectly appropriate solution uh, for the replacement of Stephen Breyer. Do you want to do you want to nominate anybody, Richard? I, I do not know the cast of characters well enough. Um, I can't nominate you, Adam. Um, well, you have no judicial experience. Very true. And you're too young. I'm not and even very judicious. Uh, you're not even judicious. And rumor has it that even though you're certainly not a Trump supporter, uh, you actually would count as a Republican. And I think I understand it correctly when you think that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. Yeah, the dogma lives strongly, lives loudly within me. So that's that's the yeah. I think it does yeah. on that issue. So you're you're toast, young man. So uh, I mean, so the one part of uh, the one part of government we haven't talked about maybe before we close is 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 the House. Uh, Democrats, while they lost seats, they remain in control. But they have real choices to make about their leadership. Um, and in many ways, the House is a microcosm for the Democratic Party in general. Um, the moment when you have maximum power is often the moment at which you, you face a maximum threat in terms of, of things breaking down. The news leaked of this conference call among Democratic members of the House, where you had some members, including uh, Representative Abigail Stern uh, Spanberger, 
she's from a, the Virginia 7th District, not far from where I live. And so I was seeing her, t- her commercials on the local TV quite a lot. She was really on this call laying into her colleagues for the defund the police stuff and, and so on, really challenging them to be a more centrist party. On the one hand, you know, we, you look at the Democrats' most vocal um, partisans in Congress of the last few years, and you sort of say there's no hope for that. Uh, on the other hand, Democrats have from time to time managed to force themselves into some semblance of, of centrism, whether it was the, the era of the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, and, the, yes. and then um, in 2006 when Rahm Emanuel uh, and others recruited people like Heath Shuler and, and other sort of centrists to be in the party uh, in the House, uh, and, and that moved things a little bit to the middle before they went left again. Do you think there's any hope for a, a centrist Democratic Party, or are they just going to keep moving in, in AOC's direction? Well, I don't think they'll keep moving in her direction. The question is whether they're going to move back. It's very difficult to predict. And here's the problem. When you talked about the DNC, uh, there was an outside intellectual organization of Clinton, that is 1990 Clinton people, who were around there who could nourish and could feed you candidates of that sort. Mm -hmm. That group seems to have died, disappeared, and so forth. And so where are you going to find the sort of the inspiration, the recommendation, the backers, the promoters, the trainers, the coaches uh, to put those candidates up? Um, that's going to be harder for them to do. But I think Ms. Spangenberg is 100% correct. Uh, you put it in the following light. Uh, yes, I'm in favor of improved social services in a whole variety of relationships. Um, and in 10 to 15 years, you hope that that would make some kind of a difference. But what are we going to do in the interim <laughs> is rather pressing if it turns out that people go to the streets and riot and become essentially undisciplined. Uh, Lori Lightfoot found this out when people started to attack her own home, and she did not call the social service people to come in to talk to the demonstrators. She had a ring of police around her house in order to protect her, as as in fact she was right to do. So I think that that issue has some real traction. If you look at the polls, I think that's why it was more than anything else that the Democrats lost ground. Um, If you look at uh, San Francisco, it's become a genuine cesspool in terms of the way in which it operates. There's a piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning by a guy named Landon, I think, Joe, somebody or other, who says, you know, I love California. That's why I'm moving to Texas, because I can't live with the housing crisis, with the fires, the erratic electricity, and so forth. Uh, The Democratic Party in California, if that becomes uh, the basically the calling card for the Democratic Party, uh, they're going to lose the Senate 60-40, and they're going to lose the House by 50 seats, because those guys are engaged in a campaign of intellectual and political self-destruction, the like of which we've never ever seen. And, and she's sensible enough. And, you know, I want more people like her in there. I'm not in favor of having only Republicans. I would love to see some really smart Democrats coming and doing that stuff. And I think that she's going to have some kind of a bite. Nancy Pelosi, uh, the great tragedy of her is she's a shrewd politician, but she doesn't have to worry about her base. She's from the most liberal district in San Francisco, but everybody else in that party has to do so. And so I think, in effect, that those pressures are going to be very real on the way in which these things are going to start to take place. I don't think you're going to see a lot of people supporting the proposition that the voting age should be reduced to 16 or something else like that, or that transgender rights of a rather aggressive nature uh, should be the centerpiece of their campaign. I think the Democrats would be well advised to figure out 
about how they can deal with bread and butter issues that you really have to face, including all of the massive dislocations that come out of the virus spread. That's an entire different show, uh, but I'm not very encouraged by Joe Biden on those particular issues. Uh, but I think that if you've got the Democrats to sit down and try to work out some more sensible approach, uh, there would be some common ground that they could strike with some of the Republicans. That's what I hope. But I mean, who are we, Adam, to decide the fate of the world? And your views, uh, do you think Miss Spangenberg has got it right? Or do you think that there's something that uh, she's missing? Well, I I think she's right on the merits. I don't know whether she she's going to end up being the, the prevailing voice in, in the caucus. Um, but you, you mentioned an op-ed along the way. The, the, it's actually the, the name you were searching for was Joe Lonsdale. Landon. Lonsdale. Yeah, oh, Lonsdale. Yeah, Joe, yeah okay. uh, Joe and I know each other uh, a bit. We're friends and and. He comes from Peter Thiel's world of uh, Silicon Valley, um, works with Peter Thiel, helped co-found Palantir. You know, he, his fund is 8VC, um, and he's, he, he's done really, really interesting work on regulatory reform um, through a, a nonprofit that he created called Argive and now a, a company called Esper. Uh, and and it, I'd really encourage people to look up this op-ed. He, I think the title was something along the lines of, California, love it and leave it. And he says, I love California. My family moved here for opportunity 40 years ago. And now I'm moving away for the same reason. I'm going to Austin, Texas. Um, it's, it's interesting, not just for his own story and the story of the, the breakdown of, of the, blue, the Democratic blue model in California, um, and we, which we should pay close attention to, because as the saying goes, California is where the future happens first. And that's always been the case. And we ought to be very worried about that now. But one thing that caught... Well, one thing that caught my eye in the op-ed was he, he pointed out that the tech industry really is beginning to decentralize, um, moving to towns like he, he listed a few, um, Nashville, Austin, and I can't remember the other ones. Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Las Vegas. But Israel. Yeah, and, right? and, and even, you know, within California, down to, down to Los Angeles, where Teal relocated. That would be very encouraging if there would be a way for the, the tech industry to move beyond it's cloister in Palo Alto. There's good reasons for why everything's centralized there. It's just like there's a reason why the, the auto industry centralized in Detroit, Detroit. the Hollywood in, in, in Los Angeles, and, and on and on. But I, I took that as a very encouraging sign that he believes that we might see diversification of these things out into the broader uh, American public. And it's certainly with the virus being more and more stuff done on Zoom, uh, yeah. it's the cost of separations are much lower. Uh, this is a challenge not only for California. Uh, the last story I saw had New, New York City losing 300,000 residents. And now that we have this second surge with the uncertainty about the school situation, they're going to suffer a huge problem as these New Yorkers will now claim that their primary home is their vacation house in New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, or even outside the city, inside the state. So, yes, I think that this is right. I thought it was a very prophetic, very powerful editorial of what's going on in that case. And I have to say, I agree with him 100%. I, I cannot see how that state is going to survive. I am a Hoover fellow. Uh, this year, obviously, nobody's going out to Hoover um, because they can't even open up the situation. But you see the incipient signs of decays where the recreational vehicles are parked all along El Camino Real uh, because people yeah. cannot afford to commute on the one hand and they can't afford the housing on the other hand. Uh, the housing prices are going to plummet. Uh, but the basic law 
long-term structural mistakes that exist in California are there. Um, they have to be much more market-oriented. They can't blame everything on global warming. They actually have to look at what they've done uh, to the forest control, to so forth. Uh, the level of policy mistakes that are made in that particular state, it simply boggles the mind. It's beyond a comprehension that they could do such a bad job on every issue. And I think, in effect, that there may be a reaction there. Uh, because remember, AB5, right? They kept it alive yeah. in modified form. And the other point I think that's probably worth mentioning is that the Proposition 16, um, which was supported by every major party in town, was thumped uh, by the opposition with the tiny thing. And as I said to my friend Manny Clausen, who was one of the chairman of this, I'm in favor of affirmative action programs and I would vote for you in a sec. Because I, the way in which this thing has turned out in California has become a long-term institutional nightmare because it's all or nothing. And if it's either too much or too little, this is way too much. And I think there are a lot of people in California thought that I think the other thing that's going to happen is what you've already mentioned. I think maybe it was before the show. The Republicans this time around did exactly the right thing. They recruited strong African-American candidates and strong women candidates in many of these congressional races. And what they're doing is trying to address the weaknesses. I think if you wanted to make going back to the Trump election, this is what I think, in fact, uh, if I were a Democrat, I would be up at night. Trump got 26 percent of the minority vote. Um, more than a Republican has gotten in a very long time. He'd got 18% of the black American male vote, much less of the female vote. Um, the Asian vote, I think, switched to what used to be heavily Democratic because of Pete Wilson and similar things. Uh, the Republicans got, I think, 31 or 32% of that vote. Uh, Asian is a very broad category and the subdivisions may really matter. Uh, but if you push very hard on Black Lives Matter, um, you will take all of these minority groups and push them to the other side, maybe not by majorities. But if you take 10 or 15 percent of a very large minority vote and turn them into reliable Republicans, what's going to happen? The nation will start to look like Florida. Adam, I think Florida is a red state now, isn't it? That's a reliably red state and um, getting redder all the time. And, and that's the reason why. Yeah. It's not just the Cubans anymore. It just turns out there are a lot of people out there who just don't want any part of this. And they think they have a pretty good governor. And they won. And, you know, they got Ohio. They lost maybe Arizona, although I think that's more Trump than the party. Probably will lose Colorado. I think that may be more the party than Trump. Uh, but if I'm doing the counts, uh, two things become very clear for 2024. One is that all the red shifts are going to stay and that some of them will magnify. And secondly, when we recalibrate the government, uh, California will lose at least one, maybe two seats. New York will lose one, maybe two seats. Illinois will lose probably two seats out of this thing. Um, you're going to see more votes from reliably blue states shift away than votes from reliably red states shift away. So the Democrats are going to have to basically uh, climb a wall, which is probably going to be seven to 10 votes against them relative to the current election. I, does that strike you as right or wrong? I mean, that's my reading of this, at least under the current population trends? Well, every four years, we seem to surprise ourselves in some way, but it certainly seems that the trend lines are headed towards the Republicans maintaining their strongholds in, in Florida and, and in these areas, while Democrats continue to gain out in the Western Sun Belt. Yeah, but I think in California, they've lost several seats in the House out there. They lost at least one seat in New York State. 
Uh, what I'm saying, in effect, is with the congressional districts, it's a blotchier map. And the fact that the state will go reliably for the president in one direction doesn't mean that they'll be able to keep that kind of dominance with respect to congressional seats. And I think that that's going to happen. If you don't have Trump at the top of the ticket, as what I regard as a an asset in some areas, which is solid Republican anyhow, but his being gone is going to be a huge asset to the Republicans in purple type communities. I think what next time up, we probably have twice as many Democrats as Republicans up on the cycle and all the high seats are up. My prediction is unless the Democrats move to the moderate side, the Senate's going to look something like 57 or 58 for the Republican and the House is going to go into Republican hands probably by 10 or 20 votes. Well, Richard, who knows what the future brings, whether it's over the next four years or just over the next two weeks. Yes, that's true. Well, as always, Richard, it's such a pleasure to get to chat with you about these things. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Adam. And of course, we're grateful as always to our listeners for tuning in this time. Please tune in uh, two weeks from now for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.